Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Come on. You guys are the lively crowd. You guys got up. You got your coffee. You came to second service. And look, I'm just so glad that you guys are here. And happy Mother's Day to all the moms. I'm glad that you chose Christ Church to be the place where you uh, make your mom happy by coming to church today. Uh, I'm so glad to see all of you here. Um, So, yeah, (laughs) thank you guys so much for being here. And of course, happy Mother's Day. Be sure you text a mom happy Mother's Day today. Uh, You know, this holiday is a beautiful time. We get to spend intentional time with uh, one another. Uh, Most of this time is uh, around a table. Uh, Whether that be dinner tonight, or if you came to first service, you had time for brunch afterwards. Since you came to second service, maybe we'll be everyone else to lunch. Uh, Don't hold your breath. This is the extended version of my sermon. If you guys, have you seen the extended copies of different movies? We're going to go along. You guys didn't giggle at that because you're scared, but I'm joking, I swear. (laughs) All right, Uh, but... All these encounters share a couple of things in common. Uh, There is a location and there is a subject. A location is the table and the subject is moms. There are beautiful things that happen around the table, but the purpose goes beyond sharing a meal. It isn't wasted time. It's time that's invested. Uh, We grow together. We grow in nourishment, not just by the food that we intake, but by the conversations that we're able to have. Sometimes it's returning to a safe space, but for others, it, it could be a time of healing. You know, and this isn't, I didn't include this in my sermon, but I thought this through. There's a reason why seasonal depression is a real thing, why certain people have difficulty coming together with their families uh, during the holidays, during Thanksgiving and Christmas, because they didn't feel safe or they might not feel welcome or they have these thoughts in their head that hinder them from fully taking in what is happening in that moment. So there's, these are specific, significant, and necessary encounters, whether that be for the purpose of growing together and being excited for one another, or it could be a specific time for healing where we get to heal those wounds uh, together as a family. There's something amazing that happens when we come to the table. We enter into a specific encounter. There's a purpose why we're there. And like I said, it goes beyond just eating. Though, let's be honest, we go to mom's house, we're going to eat good. It goes beyond that. And we're going to take a a couple of moments this morning to unpack this. And I'll be honest, guys, it's going to get wild. So I hope that you're ready to, like, track with me because we're going to go down some rabbit holes. And we're going to hear a couple different stories that I'm just super excited to share But yeah, and so let's get into it. There are two instances in Scripture that I want to take a second for us to unpack. The first one is in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And here's what we read. David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? This is uh, after some time of David being king. There's a lot of context there for you, right? All right, let me give some backstory of what's happening here, of why David is saying these things. So uh, um, 
the nation of Israel had been released out of captivity or they left the captivity of Egypt. You know, we have the prince of Egypt. Uh, Moses leads God's people out of Egypt. Uh, they, they are being guided by God. They, uh, there's the, the Red Sea is split. They go through. God is keeping them safe. He's delivering them from other nations that kind of want to take over them or uh, there's war around them. There, there are different instances if you read throughout the history of Israel where God just was present. He was with them. He kept them safe. There was a direct line between the nation, God's chosen people, and God himself. Uh, for, they trusted in God. They looked to God for guidance, and they were delivered time and time again and they reached a point when they reached their land, and after some time, there was the law, there was the judges, uh, there was prophets who, who were the communicators between God and the nation. But after a while, the nation said, hey, we want a king. Every other nation has a king. We, we want one too. And God looked at them and was like, hey, look, I'm going to tell you, you really don't want to. And they were like, you know what? No, we do. We do. Every other nation has a man that represents them. We want a man to be our king and, and, and rule over us. And God was hesitant, but they kept nagging him, and he gave in to it. This is a long story, very, very short. Uh, he allowed for them to have a king, and so Saul became king of Israel. He became the first king. And he starts off by following God and he's obeying God and he's doing things in God's name. But ultimately, he reaches this point where he becomes corrupted by the power that he has. He doesn't go back to the source. He just keeps feeding on his power. He, he starts looking for ways to keep his power that don't depend on God. He starts making his own decisions that contradict what God has said. And uh, as a result, God sets aside the next king, which is David. David was about 12 years old when he is anointed to become king. And so after he's anointed, he continues on his life. Uh, he, he has different experiences that God used to prepare him for kingship. And Saul ends up becoming jealous of David because he observes the growth. He observes how David becomes this king, basically. And, and he knows that David is, is anointed, probably. And he becomes jealous of what is happening, knowing there is another that is being called by God to be king. And so David, uh, Saul tries to kill David constantly. In fact, there's one point where uh, David is being tormented by demons, and so he calls for, sorry, Saul is being tormented by demons, and David is called into the king's courts, and he's playing, and he's singing, and it soothes the, the demons that are tormenting Saul, and Saul realizes this is the one. This is, this is the one who's going to replace me, and he gets so jealous and enraged, he grabs a spear and throws it, I'm just telling you guys, if you guys start throwing things at me, that ain't going to be pretty. <laughs> but David ends up fleeing. And this is a really weird situation because you see also at this time, David had befriended, uh, or prior to this even, had been friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. They'd become best friends. They became like brothers. And in a way, he kind of was a family 
part, a part of Saul's family. Um, and in light of their brotherhood, David promises Saul, or promises Jonathan this one thing. He says he would take care of his family should anything happen to him. If anything happens to Jonathan, I will take care of them and make sure that they are well. Now, this verse takes place after both Saul and Jonathan die. They die at war. Um, after some time of crisis within the nation, they're trying to find who's going to be the next king, and they turn to David, the appointed and anointed king of Israel. David is about 30 when he becomes king, after living years of exile, being hunted by Saul. And so he becomes king, and it's important to recognize that Saul might have been the nation's chosen king, but David was God's chosen king for the nation. He was who God entrusted the nation to, truly and fully. Uh, David's devotion to God was unmatched. In fact, that's why in the New Testament, Paul refers to David as a man after God's own heart because of the relationship that he had. Now let's return to the text. Now David is king, uh, and there's probably about 40 years of peace up at this point. David turns to his servant. Uh, I, I can imagine that he's, um, he's probably reminiscing on these old stories. He's talking about uh, his time. He might have been talking about, oh, yeah, that one time I, uh, I, I, was, I, uh, I threw a rock at Goliath. The guy fell, cut off his head. So he's telling all these stories, probably reminiscing on good times, and he comes across the memory of his best friend, Jonathan. And so he's probably troubled as he sits on this throne, and he goes, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And we continue in verse 2. Now there was a servant in Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba at your service? He replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is lame of both feet. We see earlier in 2 Samuel, um, what happened after Jonathan and Saul die. There's chaos in, in the kingdom. There's chaos in the nation because they're looking for who's going to be the next king. In fact, they're terrified that it's going to be another descendant of Saul because of what they saw through Saul. There we go. Yeah, that's how you say it. But they become troubled, so they start hunting down Saul's descendants because they don't want them to be king. And those who weren't killed, who they weren't able to capture and kill, fled for their lives. They left. And in the midst of this, we see in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 4, this is where we hear of this young man for the first time. His name was Mephibosheth. And I got to be honest, I struggled so hard to say that name, like a lot. And so I'm very proud of myself for saying that. Okay. And I'm going to say it a lot in the sermon. So hold on. Uh, but it's a very difficult name. It's a unique name to say. It's Mephibosheth. And he was the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. And in an attempt of fleeing, we see in, uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 4 of uh, 2 Samuel, in an attempt of fleeing the nation before being killed, at the time Mephibosheth was five years old. 
and his nurse comes up, grabs him, and they leave. And in the hurry and in the, in, in, in the fear that they were going to be killed, uh, Mephibosheth is dropped. He, he falls, uh, he is dropped, and he is hurt, and he becomes disabled. So that's why they describe him as being lame in both feet. When David asks where Mephibosheth is, his servant, or this servant tells the king that this young man is now living in Lodabar. This was a desolate land. It was located across the river, Jordan. It was basically a land of exile. Uh, nothing good came out of it. I tried so hard to figure out an analogy, like how you guys could understand what this place was like. Here's what I got. It's not the best, but it's something we can all relate to. You guys watch The Lion King. So there's a scene where Simba and Mufasa are up on Pride Rock, and he goes, anything the light touches. And Simba's like, what about that? And he's like, oh, no, not that. <laughs> it's the elephant graveyard. There's nothing but death and dry land. There's nothing fruitful about this place. It's a place of exile. That's why Scar was there. It was a place of exile. And that's where this young man lived. So Mephibosheth is called before the king, called before David. In 2 Samuel 9, 6 through 13, we read this. Um, oh, actually, yeah, 6 through 13, sorry. Um, when, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan and son of Saul, came to David, he bowed to pay him honor. Be reminded, his feet didn't work. So what does this look like for this young man? He was on his face before the king. He wasn't just kneeling. He was on the ground before the king. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, don't be afraid, David said, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land, all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, who was the previous king. And you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and he said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? The king then summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, at, uh, during his reign and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants will obey him. They, they, they will, uh, you will farm the land and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth's, and Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. And then they make a remark that Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. He had plenty of people to farm the land. And then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And then they wrap this up by saying, and Mephibosheth now lives in Jerusalem. He lived in Jerusalem. He was no longer in Lodabar because he always ate at the king's table. And then they remind us he was lame in both feet. Let's take a second and unpack here. 
Uh, Mephibosheth was born into royalty by his father, Jonathan. In fact, when his father uh, and mother had, when, when, he, when he was born, his father and his mother had already seen the dishonor that Saul had brought over their name, over the household of Saul, over the kingdom, you know. Everybody had seen how he had disobeyed God and the nation, the whole nation was living in consequences of what their king was doing and how he was behaving and how he was rejecting God and God's commandments and, and what God was asking for him to do. And so they had seen this dishonor. So when he was born, they named him this. They named him Mephibosheth, which meant to end all shame. It's a beautiful name. They viewed in this boy the hope for the household of Saul, not knowing what was going to happen. The fact that he was going to live in shame the majority of his life. Not simply because of what his grandfather did. Not simply because of Saul's sin and, 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 and disobedience. That was one burden to carry, but now on top of that, he was crippled which was a sign of a, a curse, basically. You were exiled because you had these disabilities at the time. That's why the, there's so many problems in uh, the gospel that Jesus has with Pharisees or, or with the religious leaders because he's healing people. He's spending time with people who they felt weren't worthy of it. And so you have Mephibosheth, who was not only the grandson of a disobedient king, he was also crippled and lame, he was outcasted. He was viewed as unworthy. He was viewed as unclean. And he had this disability, and he was looked at differently. He was treated differently. He retained a posture of shame his whole life. He was royalty, but he lived as a peasant. He constantly lived reminded of the contradiction of his life. This young man that was called to end all shame in his family, all dishonor in his family, lived in this place of exile, and he was crippled. And now, after all this time, he is ushered in before the king with his crippled legs, and he is called by name, and he retracts, and he humbles himself before David, and he says, at your service. But David tells him, no, don't be afraid, because today is the day that you come out of your shame. It is the day that you are restored into your greatness, the greatness that you were created for. And here's my favorite part is Mephibosheth doesn't understand this. He doesn't get it, or, or he's probably not even listening, honestly, because he believes that he probably was brought here, he was dragged here to die. He was a contender for the throne he was in direct lineage to be king. He felt that David possibly was bringing him in here to kill him. And at the time, is probably mocking him by using his name. And so he responds with, I am but a dog. 
I don't deserve anything. And here's my favorite part. It's David ignores him. <laughs> David, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, he turns to Ziba and says, you, your sons, your servants, you're all going to serve him. I am giving back the land of his grandfather, and you're going to work that land so that he can live prosperously, so that he can live well. And also, he is going to sit at my table. And then he turns to Mephibosheth, and I can imagine, I can envision the compassion in his eyes, probably tearing up, swelling up with pain, but with joy as he looks at Mephibosheth and he says, you will eat at my table. Because he wasn't a stranger. He was family. Because in, in, in light of the friendship that he had with Jonathan, he said, I will take care of your family. I will take care of his descendants. He feels like he's family, like he's reunited with someone who he lost or probably didn't even know he had. And he shares this bondage. Not only for Jonathan's sake, honestly, uh, he was direct family. Uh, if you know about David's life, he, David had also married one of Saul's daughters, and so he was basically talking to his nephew. But in direct line with Jonathan, he says, and he looks at this young man, and he says, today, today you are welcome at my table. You will always be welcome at my table. The servant, the broken, and the wandering. You have a place at the table. Mephibosheth didn't understand this um, because he felt like he didn't deserve anything other than what he had already experienced. In fact, he felt unworthy of what David was telling him. I would even argue he felt uncomfortable. He lived in this place where in spite of his name, he constantly, constantly lived in shame. He was an actual vis, vis, visualization, there we go, <laughs> visualization of crippledness, of brokenness. And he didn't deserve to be in the presence of the king. And so to be told, hey, now you sit at the table felt uncomfortable to him. He probably just wanted to return to his old ways, to his comfort, to the things that he knew. There are things that separate us from being able to be fully present at the table. You know, we just watched a video of uh, things that moms never say. I thought it was hilarious. There were a lot of gems in that. But probably my favorite one was there's a scene where the mom is at the table and they're praying for dinner and she just finishes praying. She says, in Jesus' name I pray. Uh, All right, let's take out our phones. If you're a mom, raise your hand if you've ever said that, being a mom. No? You encourage that behavior? You know, it's funny because these devices were created to connect people that aren't around each other. But somehow, some way, we've allowed these devices to disconnect us, to be a hindrance on relationship, to disconnect us, to distract us. Uh, it's true because there's something beautiful and powerful that is happening around the table, yet we allow these distractions to inhibit that, to stop that. So let me ask you this. What is distracting you from being present at the table? In the case of Mephibosheth, I, I believe his was insecurity. 
He didn't believe he was worthy of being at the king's table. He even calls himself a dog who doesn't deserve such honor. It's a distraction that stops him from fully embracing his identity as he who will end shame. Our insecurities don't allow us to come before the king, to come to the table. They make us feel unworthy. It could also be our sin. It could be I'm attempting to follow and spend time with God, but my mind keeps wandering to my sins or, some, or temptations that I am facing. And so we allow those distractions, those things that God tells us not to do, to stop us from being in the presence of the king, to being fully present at the table. It could even be a good thing. It could even be our calling, the things that we view as important in our ministries or in our lives. We could say, you know, I, I can't spend time with God because I'm doing this. I'm too busy to make time for this. You know, I had a friend who actually said this to me a couple weeks ago when we were on vacation. And he said, uh, I, should, um, I should pause. I, sh- I would rather pause these things in my ministry or the things that I feel called to do in order to spend time with God. He said this because he, he describes it as his ministry is not towards these people. His ministry is towards God and Jesus. And I have nothing to offer people if I do not spend time with God and Jesus. I am honored. I am blessed. I am I am filled with joy with being used by God to guide, direct, teach people, but it's in direct correlation with my relationship to the Father. And so it could even be a good thing. We could say, I am serving, therefore I don't have time. But that's not an excuse. That, again, is a distraction. You see, the purpose of the table is intimacy. It's community. In the Hebrew culture, uh, a feast is not a momentary thing. Uh, it's, it's a symbolic thing. It's a symbolic, it's symbolic of an eternal and ongoing celebration. God's intention for humanity has always been community. It has always been intimacy, and it's always been personal. From the beginning of time, he had this intent for the creator to be accessible to the creation. It's clear in the design of Eden. You know, humanity was created in the perfection of Eden, in the presence of God with the intent of unity and intimacy with God the Father. But sin entered mankind. And that separated the creation from the creator because it wasn't in his intended design. Instead, it was a consequence to disobedience. So for the early part of human history, mankind constantly tries to or attempts to bridge the gap between creation and creator from man and God. So they, uh, they did sacrifices, they uh, had laws, they had judges, they had prophets, they witnessed God, they turned to God, they asked, and they saw things, but even then, It wasn't good enough. And even in that separation, God 
had a plan. His plan would redeem humanity, would cleanse the sinful, and turn them back towards his presence. So he sent his son, Jesus, the embodiment of God, made flesh and bone, and he is born to die for us. That's the whole salvation narrative right there. That's the whole purpose of this. That's the whole purpose of Jesus was unity, presence, intimacy, accessibility to God. However, we see another invitation to the table. Before Jesus dies, he and his friends go and share a meal and they go to this upper room. We just partook in uh, something like it. We took communion earlier in this service where we are reminded of Jesus' sacrifice and they enter and they share in this moment. They walk into this room and even, even, even in that moment, Jesus takes time and he washes their feet. And there's even like an argument between them of like, I don't think he should be doing this. But he confronts that because the son of man came to serve and not to be served. So Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And he takes a second to serve his friends and he gets down, washes their feet, and then they go to the table and they have conversations and we get a visual of their table time throughout the Gospels. They share this meal, which is known as their Last Supper, before Jesus is betrayed. And it is here in John's Gospel where we see a different posture of being at the table. Jesus takes a second and says this in John 13. He says, Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts me, whoever accepts who I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the, the disciple who Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? We know the betrayer was Judas, who sells Jesus for the average price of a slave at the time in order for the fulfillment of what Jesus was going to do next through his death, through his resurrection. We know that. But I want us to look at the posture of John in this gospel in this passage. That was John who was sitting at Jesus' side, who was reclining against him. John describes his own account of the Last Supper. His language, uh, he uses this language throughout his whole gospel. Uh, he says, the one who Jesus loved, the loved one, says something. But he's basically calling himself his, the favorite, right? He's saying, I am the favorite of Jesus. Jesus loves me a lot. You know, and he takes any second he can to just throw that in there. It's like the one who was next to him was the one who Jesus loved. You know, and there's this moment where 
Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And I like the message describes it as they didn't even have to say anything. Peter probably just looked at John and they were close enough that he read his thoughts. And so John turns to Jesus and he reclines back on his chest and he says, who is it? The reason I bring this up is when coming to the table of God, what will your posture be like? What will it be like? We just established that God created mankind with the intention of community, not just with one another, but with him. God's desire for us is to set aside time to come to the table, to be refreshed, just as many of us are going to do this day with our moms. Because it's not time wasted, it's time invested. And we're going to be renewed and strengthened in that time. But here's the thing. Do we allow our distractions, our sins, our insecurities to hinder our time at the table with God. Mephibosheth had a hard time coming to the table of the king because of the way that he saw himself. He viewed himself as failure. He viewed himself as sin. But David didn't see him that way. To David, he wasn't a failure. He was worthy. He was the son of Jonathan. It was because of the covenant that David made with Jonathan that now Mephibosheth is able to come to the table of the king. It is because of the covenant that God created with Jesus that now we are able to come to the table of the king. I want us to leave with a practical thought. In conclusion, my last thoughts. You guys are perking up now, getting excited. (laughs) Um, I want us to leave with this thought. It's a burden in my heart. Uh, A lot of people view that... view what Jesus has done um, and the acceptance of his salvation and his sacrifice is simply a gateway into eternity. Or it's something that we reap after we die and go to glory. And that's right. We, we get to rejoice with all of heaven, all of creation, as we celebrate the church and the connection with God, as we celebrate the feast, as we celebrate the wedding of the lamb and the church, we do get to celebrate this, but we don't reap the benefits of the presence of God after we die. God's desire for humanity is to encounter him now. Eternity is not just when we die. It's not just later. It's in the here and now. We are being called to the table daily. Every single day. And we're called by name. Just as David yells, the shame has ended to Mephibosheth. Will you come to the table of the king? And when you do, will you turn away in embarrassment? of your failures? Or will you come and recline on his chest and be so close to the Savior to be able to whisper in his ear? Will we continue to live in ignorance 
thinking that our identity remains in our failures? Or will you come boldly to the table and embrace your identity as a son and a daughter of the king? Will you pray with me? Dear God, we are so thankful for your love. We're so thankful for your grace. God, that we have this opportunity to come to the table for you welcoming us into the table, into your presence and into your love. God, I pray that we can live fully embracing what it is that you have said. God, I pray that you put in our hearts the method that you will use for us to encounter you. God, I pray that in this moment we can think of ways that we can honor you, love you, pursue you, and create intentional time with you. That our minds can be molded by not what we think, but by what you have done, by what you have called us. God, that we can boldly leave our shame behind and trust in you. And we thank you for Jesus, for this covenant that you've created for us. We thank you for your mercies. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. So now we come into this time. Um, And as we leave today, I want to encourage us, take some time and think, process, pray, ask God, what does it look like for me? What does it look like for me to come to the table? For everyone, it's different. It's creating an intentional space and time in which we can encounter God. For some, it's uh, maybe I pray while I drive. For others, it might be I wake up earlier. These last couple of days after reflecting and writing the sermon, I've, I've been waking up early and watching the sunrise, which isn't something that I regularly do. But it creates a time and space in my busyness. For some, it could be uh, maybe you have a spare bedroom and you make that your prayer room. That's what my mom did when I moved out. (laughs) Whatever it might be, like I said, it's different. Will you boldly do that? Because God is asking you to prepare space, to make room. And there is nothing better than recognizing the eternal consequences of our Sunday mornings. The difference that God is calling us to make in our lives and in our sinfulness, and in our brokenness, to grow in his presence. So I want to invite you to join us this morning as we sing and as we pray. And if you need prayer, Jordan will be up here to pray along with you. Will you stand and sing with us?